0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gallery 44 podcast. I'm Alana Traficante, Gallery 44's Executive Director, and you're listening to a special episode guest hosted by Toronto-based curator Toline Touk in conversation with Anahita Narosi, an artist based in Montreal. We are delighted to bring Toline and Anahita together for this discussion about Anahita's current exhibition Sistema Naturae, which is on view at Gallery 44 in Toronto until December 9th. Anahita Narosi is a multidisciplinary artist, originally from Tehran and active in Montreal since 2018. Her practice is research-driven, derived from marginalized histories, with a particular focus on the legacies of botanical explorations and archaeological excavations, especially when scientific research became entangled in the colonial exploitation of non-Western geographies. Articulated across a range of mediums and materials, including sculpture, installation, photography, and video. Her work interrogates different cultural and political perspectives on the human and non-human other, underlining the complex space between the conflicted states of displaced people, plants, and cultural artifacts, and the responsibilities of the host country. Narosi's works have been shown internationally. Recently, at Biennale Sur the International Contemporary Art Biennial of South America in Buenos Aires, the National Gallery of Canada, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, the Royal Ontario Museum, and the Musée National des Beaux-Arts du Québec. She has received numerous grants, fellowships, and awards, including notable awards like the Grantham Foundation Centre Award, the Liz Crockford Artist Fund Award, the Vermont Studio Centre Merit, and she is the winner of the Contemporary Art Award of the Musée National des Beaux-Arts du Québec in 2023, the Impressions Residency at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts in 2022. And just this year, she is the Quebec finalist for the 2023 edition of the Sobe Art Award. And our guest host today, Toline Touk, is a curator, cultural producer, and facilitator working between Toronto, Canada, and Amman, Jordan. In Amman, she is co-founding director of Spring Sessions uh, since 2014 and ongoing, which is a yearly residency program that brings together artists, researchers, and cultural practitioners in a collaborative and experiential learning environment that is fueled by responsiveness to place and deep curiosity. She co-initiated and co-curated The River Has Two Banks from 2012 to 2017, which is a multidisciplinary artistic platform that addressed the historical, political, and spatial relations between Jordan and Palestine. Here in Toronto, she was artistic director of Savak from 2018 to 2022. And Savak is a nomadic artist-run center dedicated to presenting and developing the work of marginalized and racialized artists. She also initiated Ways of Attuning from 2021 to 2023 with Liz Akiriko to study intimate and expansive curatorial practice with a group of participants across Turtle Island. In 2024, she is guest curating the second edition of Greater Toronto Art for the Museum of Contemporary Art, Toronto, along with Kate Wong and Ebony L. Haynes. And her writings have been published with Ebras, Sternberg Press, A Prior, Manifesta Journal, and others. In today's conversation, our guests intersect colonial histories with herbaria, botanical taxonomies, the movement of plants and seeds, and the reclamation of loss, gardens and resistance. We hope you enjoy this special edition, bringing together two thoughtful and engaging minds whom I admire deeply.
1: Anahita, I wanted to start with um, you explaining to us a bit generally what this project is about, how you came about to the works that you're showing in the gallery. And I'm also specifically interested in um, the title of the show and why you're referencing um, the book Sistema Natura.
2: Hi, Chilin. I'm really happy that we are having this conversation. Um, so as you mentioned, the title of the exhibition makes it direct Reference to a book by um, the the 18th century botanist and physician uh, called Linus. I don't know if I pronounce his name correctly. Um, so it's a book that uh, had a very important uh, has an important very important place in the history of taxonomy because that was the way um, his system basically helped the botanists and the zoologists to be able to create this system of classification that was very important, um, uh, through the, all the system of classification related to nature. I'm really in this project really interested in, uh, the systems of classification and their place in the colonial exploitations of, uh, the colonies in the 19th century. The interrelation between science and um, the power dynamics between the colonizer and colonies and the role of science in all that. Um, so the project Sistema Natural, it comes from my own uh, lived experience as an immigrant where I, um, examine displacement, um, longing, to a homeland left behind the, and the alienation within the new and often hostile environment. Um, and I do this through a proxy which is um, the migration of these irises from the Middle East, mostly uh, the plateau of Persia, Um To the west, Uh, the project kind of revealed how, um, botanical explorations and scientific research, which includes also archaeological excavations in that region we call, uh, so-called Middle East, um, are kind of entangled with the exploitation of those geographies and kind of look at these disastrous legacies of colonialism in that region, um always kind of also entangled with the search for oil and resources. I kind of try to shed light through this project, shed a light on the ways that these hegemonic powers have impacted humans and other species alike and altering the entire uh, cultural traditions, demographies and ecologies. So the project in short kind of constructed based on these stories of certain species of irises that was taken during the 19th century from Iran to the West. And then they've been biologically manipulated to a point that the, the current uh, comedified also. So these, these species, a transformed version of them that they are on the market these days, they don't have absolutely no similarities to the ones that they were taken 200 years ago and um, yeah, talking about the question that I just mentioned.
1: Um, now that you also link this to a kind of like personal story, um, I guess like both of us share a little bit of that migration story, like we're both Immigrants in this in this land. I'm curious how your story of migration made you realize these kind of links uh, between scientific classification systems and colonization, and also why you chose to kind of delve deeper into this story through um, the story of the iris specifically, mm-hmm. and 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 how this plant species stands as a metaphor for many other. Um, stories of migration
2: um i feel like the whole classification There, the, like the classification itself is really human and our lives are built around systems of classification in um how it's embedded in the ways we go through the world it is it is a way we make sense of the world when you're presented to something new, I think it's almost impossible not to to try to classify it in some ways. Um, But classifications also come with inferences. And for that reason, I think we all have a kind of moral on ethical duty to question these systems of classification and what they mean. And because each category kind of values some points of view and silence another and thinking about the consequences Uh, like the decisions made by immigration offices or uh, naturalization services, um, they have an impact on the world we live in. Um, So for that reason, I feel like for me, that was my attempt, this project was my attempt uh, to think about the impact of these systems of classification that are kind of the legacies of the colonial mindset Um, in as an immigrant i have faced it personally in the first hand experience with the immigration system here and um you know i remember when when the covid hit everyone was like in the art world everyone were like talking about uh, how they were disappointed not to be able to attend this biennale or that art fair and for me it was like um i can't even leave the country um with my Iranian passport. So, you know, like, um these are the questions I feel like um we tend to, when we think about colonization, we tend to think it's like something about the history, you know, something historical. So it means that it's something that belongs to the past, but I mean, we are dealing with it in a very, in different levels on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're definitely not, uh, not done with colonization. I think it's really interesting how you bring forth like in the show, in the writing and the research that you've done, how these, um, and obviously there's there's a lot of material uh, around this, how these systems of classification, kind of these scientific ones ha- went hand in hand with the colonialist and imperialist project. And also it kind of created this view of like the separation of human from nature, right? This idea of uh nomenclature and naming plants and animals in certain ways and how it separates, it created this kind of hierarchy bet- between humans. And nature, and and obviously, like the relationship of of um, explorers and like early explorers, and how they um, how they kind of paved the way um, for for all kinds of racism that we still experience to this day. So I think it's a very important thread that you're that you're kind of weaving here. But let's talk a little bit about art. And maybe we can talk a little bit in more detail about some of the artworks that are part of this show. Um, I'd love to start by talking about um, Palimpsests of Unseen Pasts, uh, which are these beautiful, beautiful uh, large prints that are currently showing at the gallery. From our previous conversations, you've explained to me how you've made these. I'd love if you can um, explain to listeners, again, in a little bit of detail the process of making these works, because I think then... It says a lot about how you are trying to kind of uh, deal with this, with the problematics of, of immigration and racism today that we're still talking about.
2: Sure. Um, so this this work uh, is basically, if I just want to explain uh, visually how they look like, there are six panels, like let's say six, six screens made of cotton and I used an anti-type uh, process to create these prints on them so what you would see and actually they are the human size so they are basically like these kind of partitions or walls within the space that you have to go around to be able to see them and get physically engaged with them so they are kind of looking these kind of yellowish like a worn of uh, yellow, uh, which comes from the solution that I use by uh, using zaffron, uh, which is a plant comes from Iran. It's a synonymous of Iran, and it's a plant native to Iran, and uh, we use it a lot in uh, Iranian cuisine. And also, uh, it's the same family of the iris. So I use zafron, a solution made from zafron, to um, create these antithat prints. And what you see on, on the on the on the screens on the um, these textile panels is basically a skeleton of some irises. So to make these images, I contacted many herbariums in Europe, in in North America, that they had. The certain species of irises that they are native to Iran, that they were taken in the beginning of 19th century to the West to, as a community, as a trophy for ornamental reason to, uh, to design the Western gardens. And, um, I asked these herbariums, like these institutions, if these irises were taken from Iran specifically. So I gathered, like, I think 30 species of irises and, 13 herbarium page and i remove all these kind of scientific projection and scientific assessment that you see uh usually on the herbarium page so i just wanted to reclaim the plant itself as a way of resisting to go through this system of classification and assessment and resisting that and also just giving the space to the plant itself. So you see the contours of the plant, the skeleton of the plant, which is like dry, broken, very fragile, but at the same time very beautiful. And on top of that, we have this very like a thin, uh, shimmery layer of textile that you see um, all these uh, paper uh, newspaper clippings uh, arch- archival, Im- archival images that are printed as a second layer. So based on the timeline, these archival images are not coming from certain era, certain period of time, from certain specific geography. So there's like a combination of different layers of history. By removing those, uh, like a scientific assessment, I gave a space to these archival images because I wanted to re-narrate those histories, the histories of these plants through my own perspective. Because from the, in the eye of the official history, the story of these plants is like not even considered as something important. But for me, they are just a small pieces of a giant history and tells a lot about the power dynamics at the time. And there are six of them. So um, you see also on the these um, panels, small color swatches that I embroider the color of the actual plant when you see it in the its natural habitat, a way of reclaiming the plant, but also a way of resisting uh, for further lose loss of whatever has been lost through this process of displacement.
1: And can you speak specifically about the textile? nature of the of the pieces like why you choose chose to work in textile
2: um yeah i think we talked about this because you know like in the history of botany the work of women have contributed a lot in whether through the classifying the plants or um assisting a botanist or uh illustrating like the, the plants that they were uh, collected that work has never considered scientific or important so even when we have these women botanists they always named in the papers or in the history when you look at the history of botany they always considered as uh, the second person or just an assistant or someone who is not even being named in the process so um so for me it was also emphasizing um on that role by using the material that is really like manipulating the textile is something that is really uh, feminine as an act but as strong as any scientific method that has been considered as being pushed by by men um
1: yeah what i really love about like hearing you also explain how you did this work is that you're again like you said you're narrating a different kind of story for the iris and you're creating a portrait for me it feels like you're creating a portrait that is actually a very full and layered kind of portrait Mm -hmm. rather than you know this kind of like um, Mm two-dimensional perhaps we can say like superficial portrait of an iris that is probably sitting in these museums in the west by returning it to its original name by using techniques like embroidery and dyeing and also by bringing in these archival materials that you also explained to me are like you know from different time areas they're cropped in certain ways they kind of reference issues around like land exploitation and oil extraction that go you know as policies and as techniques of imperialism and colonization go hand in hand with this kind of like extraction of the plants and flowers and taking them to the west for certain ornamental reasons um so i love how this is actually an exercise of portraiture in a way, like creating, bringing back a more traditional or a more full or a more like layered kind of story to these species.
2: Exactly. Um, So when you, for example, like when you look at the history of the still life, for example, from the 17th century and then 19th century, all the question of Orientalism and the question of representation of the Orient, which is the, uh, region stretch from west of Asia to north of Africa. So all this uh, material depiction, uh, the plants, the flowers, they had a very important place in those uh, paintings, for example, of this thin life genre. So it's kind of narrate of something. They kind of try to narrate something Of human's experience but also they were really proud with the political presentation because uh, the western painters at the time they wanted to uh, show these kind of exotic and unfamiliar uh, species or foods or goods that come from somewhere else somewhere far as a status maker as a sign of power or privilege or uh, wealth these days we are interpreting those kind of activities as something related to histories of colonialism, Orientalism, and cultural appropriation. So for me, it's like, it was also a way to reverse this tradition, this, not reversing it, just decolonizing this tradition, like what has been taken from the East and brought to the West, how we can read it differently, how the interpretation of a person, an immigrant who moved from the East to the West and encountering and like remeeting these, species how it can be read in a different way and be p- represented in a different way so i feel like the act of reclaiming is really um, important here and i uh, when i was reading about your project uh, about the seeds and i i feel like there is a lot of resonance here like the immigrants who brought their seeds from their home country to the west to Create their own gardens. So um, I think that there is a lot of parallel between these two kind yeah. of.
1: Yeah, I feel I feel also the same. Like thinking about your project is really taking me back to to 2020. The project that Anahita's referencing is called um, Ishtar's International Network of Feral Gardens, and it's a project that started uh, through Savak, the South Asian Visual Arts Center here in Toronto during the pandemic to build a network of uh, feral gardens across the world um, and think about what it means to be planting on the land and growing our own food um, and saving seeds and eating together and harvesting together. I think, you know, the site of the garden, I think is also like very relevant here and also relevant to what you're talking about and the irises and thinking about like the garden as uh, as another metaphor maybe for our relationship with with nature and how we how we kind of are and how how we are with the land, you know to, to put it to put it very very generally but for me this project was one like a, a really important thing again you you mentioned the pandemic but a really important thing to be doing during the pandemic i know a lot of people got into like baking and gardening and and you know i was one of those people who got into gardening along with many other people but um yes i wanted to to talk about like the garden as a metaphor for our relationship with nature thinking about um it's still like even though your project is not specifically about like a specific site per se as in the garden or public space it makes me think a lot about uh being here in toronto and our access to um to our own foods and to being with other plants and other and other animals and and what is kind of sanctioned and what is not it makes me think also a lot about i was thinking this morning about about a lot of houses in the middle east you're referencing iran i uh, grew up and still kind of work and go back and forth between here and jordan and Access to gardens and um, uh, vegetation back home in a way that is, you know, perhaps because like people live in like multi generational houses, or it's it feels like a lot more people have access to um, being with uh, with plants. I'm veering off into a, into another kind of <laughs> into another topic because I have been thinking. But they are
2: about all that. really interrelated. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: thinking again about maybe maybe more specifically about this the movement of plants and seeds like like we were saying a lot of these plants and seeds were kind of forcibly removed from our regions let's say from Middle East Europe but we were also talking about how people also smuggle their own seeds and their own plants you know as they they migrate in order to create a sense uh, maybe a stronger sense of belonging and of community and of and and a kind of link to to um to the home that they left, right, and I think this uh, this practice like goes back a long, long time from like enslaved people from Africa who took rice braided inside their hair and took it to the colonies, and basically started uh, rice cultivation in in North America. I think about all kinds of immigrants who come, who cross, you know, these vast distances and come you know, either bring or smuggle certain plants that remind them of home, certain plants that don't uh, necessarily grow up here. There is this, of course, this complication of, you know, as new immigrants, at least now we are, you know, we came here as also like settlers on this land, and we're bringing foreign species to this place. But, you know, maybe this is a good time to also say like that, that we are welcomed here, and we are allowed to be here. And, not just as human bodies but possibly also with our plants who a lot of them are able to grow here and i'm interested also in these kind of like heirloom like seed libraries where you can now you know plant like a a palestinian squash you know in in north america because it's it's available and you can grow your own kind of squash that you're used to here and i'm here i'm referencing a project specifically by the artist vivian sansour and i think it's called the palestine heirloom seed library I don't know if you also have stories to share about about a different kind of movement. In a way, it's also a reclaiming, like you're saying, it's a different kind of movement of um, uh, other than human or more than human species like plants.
2: Mm. Oh, there's so much in what you said that I can refer to and I can take on. you mentioned this kind of Anglo-Saxon view on the nature when they came to the new world and the impact of it. Not all, but like most of the environmental problems that they are re- dealing today in the North America. Um, that view kind of had this notion that men and plants are alike it's kind of like a classic statement of the environmental determinism uh that um i want to have a quote here let me find it uh because i uh, it, i think tells a lot yeah so the goodness and flavor of the fruit proceeds from the peculiar soil and exposition in which they grow so and when you think about all this western anxiety over who's this quote from um i i have to look it up uh i don't remember but it's like a it's a it's a it's a classic writer of the 19th century anglo-saxon uh living in california and he wrote a lot about what he calls environmental determinism so it's actually a very racist book talking about how these immigrants bringing their seeds how it contaminates our holy nature but also uh, it's throughout the book's a kind of metaphor for the immigrants themselves too you know so you see constantly these rhetorics that awfully they are like similar to the way that they would perceive a slave or uh, an immigrant uh, from china or uh, we're talking about the 19th century. So it's like when, when you look at, when you look at that time, you, you would see and you still see this kind of Western anxiety over what we see like today as, um, crisis of, uh, ecological identity. Um, so it's not a recent phenomena and it's in this attitude to, uh, I don't know, like shoot first and ask the question later in all these that that is growing army of invasive exotics that uh overrunning our country and uh jeopardizing our um, national biological heritage you know that's the thing because for the last uh 3 years these notions have been really central to what i've been doing like creating bodies of work around different species that had to deal with the same kind of uh situation uh it's been a while that I'm really interested in the plants that they are native to once colonized countries in the East, in the North, in the Middle East, in the North Africa that were brought to the West during the period of European imperialism. Then in the 20th and 21st century, they are categorized as invasive and undesirable. And when you look into the history, you see all these transfers have been always one way. Uh, whether it's a plant genome, whether it's a historical artifact, whether it's a human as a slave or the, just the share of the capital of the globalization, it's always one way. And I think it's really interesting to think why. One explanation is that these um, transfer and... Um, Circulations have been in place uh, only for the benefit of the metropolitan countries in the West, meaning that the benefits of these transfers have been unequally distributed uh, between the East and the West, even though historically the East has been the exporter and the West has been the importer. So for me, like the journey of these displaced plants are kind of like a metaphor, as you said, it just... I feel like they provide a window into the ways that the Westerners interacted with non-Westerners through plant exchange and the ways these interactions set the foundation for racism and um, xenophobia and certain problematic power dynamics that apply to both plants and human. Like, for me, the question of how a celebrated plant, um, a cherished plant in the East can become known in the West as alien, invasive, colonizer, uh, ironically, and unwanted, um, is a way to investigate into the many ways that these dis- dislocated plants gain meaning in Western mm. imagination.
1: I think, yeah, totally. And I think another example, I just want to bring forward another example mm-hmm. of a, a different kind of movement. Maybe you know the story, but thinking about Israel and Palestine and Israel mm-hmm. being, you know, uh, uh, the colonizer state in in the current lands of Palestine. I knew the story for a long time, but I just discovered recently that the pine itself, like the pine tree itself is actually non-native to um, to our region. I always see pine trees, but I never thought that they were actually European pine trees that were brought there. But the story that we know for a very long time now is how Israeli settlers brought this European pine and they used it, they planted it over the sites of destroyed villages that, you know, pa- destroyed Palestinian villages. Why? Because it grows really fast and it sheds a lot. And the shedding covers the remnants of the Palestinian villages. Aside from other reasons, you know, it's also toxic to the soil and it stops other species from growing. So I think, you know, I've read some reports where, you know, they're kind of like reconsidering the use of that pine now, but that was a plant species that was brought from Europe to colonize a land together with the settlers and is used to kind of cover the traces of uh, massacres on the land, which, which is a very important, I think, example of a different kind of movement that can happen used again for, you know, covering certain crimes for extraction of land for like afforestation, as they call it, like turning the land green, turning the desert into a forest and kind of like reestablishing this image of, you know, the, the sacred homeland that is here, you know, as, as a kind of like green forest.
2: Yeah. Like, um, I didn't know about this this is very interesting and when you were saying that I couldn't stop thinking about so many other similar examples that we see in the east of asia in the south of asia in india in north south africa and the catastrophes had created uh, and he still has been creating like environmentally, ecologically, but also politically, like the wars that it has created because of these interventions in the in the natural course of things, you know um all the interventions to create these unnatural borders and frontiers in um, in the middle East, uh, like most of the wars and these like a uh, uh, military campaigns that we are dealing today, people of that region is come from those times, um, displacing humans and plants. And, you know, that's the thing, like, when, when you look at, like, the European colonialism that it's, I don't know, it started in, like, 17th century, let's say. In the beginning, it was just to extract the surplus commodities, like gold, ivory, skein, uh, spices, slaves, but, the 19th century version of that was taken to the furthest and it kind of colonized and reordered the whole existence of the colonies, their politics, their economy, their nature. They basically were occupied and reordered to to serve the interest of the colonial power. They dug deep and they did it um, for a very long time. It made me think of a, a quote from uh, Michel Foucault, um it, Kind of gives us an interesting idea about the, um, power relations between the culture. He's, uh, he says something along this line that the fact that people of one culture can become the object of scientific observation and intervention while another culture is kind of bound of these mechanisms of power that objectify that culture and present it as a problem to be resolved. I can't stop thinking about the power between this. And the story that you just told me about the uh, uh, pine trees in Palestine. So this is kind of very much in line with the perception of the um, the other and the relationship between the knowledge and power that was developed by Edward Said in Orientalism. Yeah, and I think this
1: this also maybe brings us back to something you mentioned at the beginning, which is this. The crisis of representation right like mm-hmm. the problem of of representation maybe we can also i'd love to hear a little bit more about some other pieces in the show mm-hmm. um i loved also the circuit of dispossession if you'd like to speak to that because that also links to other kind of like systems of uh, of classification in a different way or if you want to talk about one of the other pieces like what is in a name that also brings us again to systems of classification and how you're you know as an artist trying to upend that or kind of like flip that and make us help us see things from a different lens
2: mm-hmm. sure um so just to say it quickly so this project includes uh six artworks Five of them are right now presented at the Gallery 44, but one video installation is presented at Rome, which is, I think, going to be uh, exhibited up to January 7th, if I'm not mistaken. So, like talking specifically about The circular of Disposition, because it's also, as you said, related to the other pieces, to quickly explain the work itself, how it looks like visually, um, we see um seven frames um, that are placed next to each other on the wall and uh, inside the frame, we see these kind of yellowish papers that actually the proportions of these papers are in line with the, the panels of the pattern sets of the unseen paths. So they are the same proportion, just different scales. And um, you see these yellowish archival papers that they are printed on the translucent paper. The only thing is you can't see them because I printed the back of these archival papers. When I was doing a lot of research for this project, I came across this archive that after 50 years, it was released to the public so I could have access to them. was British Petroleum Archive. And in these uh, archives, you could actually see how the land was taken over by the British Moving out the local, uh, communities from their ancestral lands to belt refineries for, to extract oil. And, um, it was really heart rushing to actually go through them to see how the land was taken over for no, like no, no money. And also sometimes in exchange with animals and changing the whole demographies of those cities in the southwest of Iran. In Khuzestan Provence, in particular. So, what I did, I took these archival materials that I could have access to them online, printed them on the translucent paper, but I used the back of them. So you see the presence of the text because the papers were really thin, so you could they were kind of see through, but you can't really read the the content. And on top of that, I use um, a material that's extracted from oil. It's a sort of sealant silen, uh, that uh, is to cover the surface to uh, protect it against the penetration of water. And by using that, I created this kind of, uh, how you say, symmetrical imaginary irises that when you look at it, it really uh, visually makes a strong reference to the ink practices of like the early... Uh, 20th century uh, psychoanalytic uh, process that they create these symmetrical images with ink and they put it in front of the patient and ask them what they can see. So that was a way to have access to their unconsciousness. So I use uh, that kind of uh, reference and imaginary to create these very delicate imaginary irises you see this kind of like a little wings that they are in, in the image are really present. So it makes you think of the little wings inside the leaves or human's body. They look like flowers, but they are not really flowers. They look like insects, but they also look like human's torso. So, um, for me, it was really a way to think about the psychology behind the displacement and the fact the state of being in between the two realities the past and the present present here and there and how these people have to navigate in such a limbo state in this state of placelessness so um that's the work and in terms of material and visually, it's really in connection to the other work, what it is in a name, which we see this like a little garden uh, of the imaginary irises that they don't exist in real life. So I, uh, you see this plants with 10 irises on top of that, that are placed really delicately. And these irises are made from black glass. So visually, they make a reference to the patrol and um so the way that i created them i look at so many different variety of irises and i combine them together to create this kind of mutated version of them thinking about how these a displaced species from one geography to another has lost their identity their vernacular name also all the knowledge that the local community built around and how all these get lost through this process of displacement and to make a kind of like a a reference to the cabinet curiosity kind of attitude and tradition uh, you see these like a little brass labels next to each plant that I give them a name and uh, in a more humorous ironic way I kind of make references to to the wrath of empire, basically.
1: Mm-hmm. I love how in um, uh, the circuit of dispossession, there's, you know, this kind of also critique of perhaps like Western psychology, which is also, you know, we can think of it as another kind of system of classification that doesn't necessarily, you know, fit all kinds of stories, right? It, it cannot hold all kinds of stories of trauma. And then I also really love the playfulness in, um, in the sculptures of of what is in a name and using kind of imagination as a way as a way of reclaiming but also as a way of like expanding stories um and in a way like you know maybe we could even call it like a kind of like world building right because we're talking about in thinking about uh dispossession and displacement like you and i had had these kind of conversations before and how you know something is lost, but also something something is perhaps gained. And how you know, as different kind of species, but as as human bodies, as us, we're also kind of um, dipping our fingers in in multiple worlds, right? Like, what is the state of being being connected to different, to multiple geographies, to multiple worlds, not necessarily being confined to one place or another. And it's the condition of, you know, the migrant or the refugee or the exile. But how can we read kind of more creatively and more imaginatively into that, for, both in terms of like our personal lives and how we live our lives, but also, I think, as an artistic practice and art as an artistic methodology, specifically here now in the way you're creating your work.
2: Absolutely. Um, I think like disease something that i started navigating years after i came to canada i came here in 2010 i did my master's and then i returned to iran because it was so hard to be away and um nest like nostalgia got over and i went back and then i realized that how it's really difficult i mean it's difficult to be an artist anywhere in the world but that region, from very where I come from, especially as a woman, is like another layer of difficulty. So that's the reason I can't return back to to Montreal. Um, I think like through this process, besides all the suffering of being away from home, dealing with all the question of identity and how I position myself, the whole experience of in between is just not something sad and difficult. There is so much into it that actually can, as an artist helps me to build my work and think and view the world as an artist and as a person one of the things that i really um, like about this position is the freedom of gaze you know like this attachment through both geographies because i am as foreigner here as when i go back to iran you know i'm i have been changed that place has been changed and we haven't been changed parallelly together so um this attachment to both of these geographic that helps me to look at it from outside and see it in a different way, and we had this conversation that being a ghost, it's it it really feels like being a ghost just helps it to navigate it uh, without any emotional attachment. More into comes with this freedom to look at these two places from a different angle, which when you are too close emotionally to something, you wouldn't be able to see it clearly, right? And also another thing that came with this position that I'm really interested in is getting away from the official memory, the collective memory of certain eras and like trying to rebuild my own personal narratives of my past and of the history of where I come from. Because, you know, like um, there are so many things that from the official, in the eye of the official history is not considered important or significant or they've been manipulated to serve some sort of political and ideological interests being away from there just helped me to uh have this feel this more freedom to go back to those histories and re-look at them and re-read them coming from that freedom of the gaze yeah
1: i think that that um that's a really maybe interesting or beautiful kind of point to to maybe start wrapping up the conversation is to think about this freedom and being ghostly or like maybe reclaiming this image of the ghost right like it can be this beautiful like generative way of transcending uh, restrictive geographies and like you said i think it's it's really important to be able to to look at histories um and genealogies and traumas with with different eyes you know and being able to maintain these these different perspectives um i think you do that a lot in your work um i also as a as a person who's been in canada only for seven years you know it's not that long sometimes i feel like it's it's too long but it's actually not that long but it has also helped me to think of dislocation as a generative practice and to be able to kind of like respond and to learn how to respond to place in, in a way that is that is um, very contextual, but also keeps in mind, you know, a multiplicity of like my history and my personal relationships and, and the kind of um, like the, this position of being able to build new relationships and new places with you know perhaps other ghostly figures perhaps this is why we're able to have this because we are navigating the world in this ghostly way and we're able to connect on this level
2: yeah absolutely and i feel like there is like a very hopeful um metaphor into it when i think about these displacement like we look at the like nature is always the source of inspiration in so many different ways in a personal way in the artistic way and then you look at all these ants and animals and insects that they have been taken from one geography to another in a totally different environment, totally different um, weather, and they manage to grow, to multiple, to continue. And um, I mean, we are not far from that, right? And. Uh, yeah even though the new uh, territories are hostile or not accommodating. Anyways, we will find a way because that's in our genome. Yeah, we've survived centuries, so uh, yeah.
1: Keep on surviving.
2: Yes, exactly. Thank you, Anahita. It was great talking to you, Tolin.
0: On behalf of Gallery 44, I'm sending gratitude to Toline and Anahita for this conversation. I also want to acknowledge support from the Canada Council for the Arts for the production of this podcast. And for our listeners, there are links in the show notes to a number of the sources that Toline and Anahita referenced, and the exhibition Sistema Nature is on view at Gallery 44 until December 9th. If you're listening after the exhibition closed, you can visit our website, gallery44.org, for documentation photography. This podcast is co-produced with Kaden Wigston, edited by Erin Hutchinson, and music is by Respectful Child.